Hello, everybody. Neil McKinnon here, and welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. In this episode, I'm interviewing the amazing Julie Starr. Right at the top of our conversation, I asked Julie how she found this thing we call coaching. Her immediate response was she wasn't sure she did, and that coaching found her without her looking for it. And she had started to practice coaching before she knew what it was. As a project manager of large-scale change initiatives and big organisations, Julie was someone who people naturally turned to with problems, often complex personal matters that required care and attention to their inner world. Julie acquired skills to enhance her ability to perform this role. Tools like neuro-linguistic programming helped her to navigate one-to-one work and prepared her for the future that awaited her. At a time when coaching qualifications had yet to be developed, Julie began writing a book that would help people understand the one-to-one work she was doing. That book is The Coaching Manual, now in its fifth edition, having garnered critical acclaim from the likes of Sir John Whitmore, widely regarded as one of the founding figures of the coaching industry. Julie, now an executive coach, mentor, writer and speaker, has since written two more best-selling books on coaching and mentoring, as well as two works of fiction, all of which are inspired by her belief in the interdependency of people and by her passionate inquiry into the nature of reality. A self-described seeker, Julie's journey of exploration through personal and professional development charts a fascinating course through the last three decades of her career and is full of interesting insights and suggestions for coaches on their own journey. In this episode, we also talk about not allowing models and frameworks to become limiting factors in your work as coach, the power of non-attachment and the importance of working joyfully, staying true to ourselves and resisting the temptation to climb a ladder that is against somebody else's wall, how to charge what you would be delighted with but not amazed by for your coaching, how to pursue the pathways that make sense to you in a turbulent, disorienting world. We also discuss the biggest challenge we face as coaches, the inner and outer work we have to do to get ourselves out of the way in coaching conversations. When I was first asked by Robbie, who I'd like to interview on the coach's journey, Julie's name was right at the top of my list. Firstly, because she quite literally wrote the book on coaching. The coaching manual is a foundational text informing my practice and one I recommend to coaches with whom I work independently and through my faculty role at the Academy of Executive Coaching. Secondly, Julie's articulation of the work necessary to unfold into the best coach we can each be is both powerful and actionable, a combination I really value. And, as important as either of those things, although I didn't know Julie well prior to this conversation, I had a sense of how much fun it would be to explore her journey and how generous she was likely to be in sharing what she has learned along the way, both of which turned out to be true even beyond what I'd initially hoped for. I'm absolutely delighted that this is my first episode as one of the new host team for the Coach's Journey podcast in this next chapter for the show. If you don't know about the new host team yet, or are wondering where Robbie is, or if he's developed a Scottish accent for some reason, listen back to episode 56 and all will be revealed. 
In that episode, Robbie explains the purpose of this new chapter, the plans over the coming months, and introduces all the members of the new team. Joey Owen, Ruth Sabol, Alex Swallow, Alex Witten, and me. And so, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the fabulous Julie Starr. Julie Starr, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. It's great to have you here and thank you for finding the time to um, do this conversation. Smashing, no, my pleasure. So we often start the podcast with how did you find this thing that we call coaching? Okay, well, if I if I were to respond immediately to that my first sense is that I I'm not sure I did find it I think it found me um and that's because I began to do it before I knew what it was so I've been involved in the field for almost 30 years now so when I go when I look back at what I was doing then I was um managing projects managing large-scale change projects um I have quite a formal background of project management and consultancy and um, ended up doing a lot in IT uh, programs and I have alongside that I have always had um, a personal interest in learning self-development kind of this inquiry into how do you be happy successful and fulfilled um, probably born from a sense that I wasn't happy, successful and fulfilled. <laughs> um, so very much a kind of how do I figure this thing, this life thing out? Yeah. Um, and 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 also having my ladder up against lots of different walls, thinking, well, I need to do this then or I need to do this. And then kind of looking externally rather than internally, which is always um, a distraction to the main um, trail. So I was kind of a seeker before I even realized I was I was just kind of trying to figure out life's problems I guess and I realized that the more that I was studying and learning um let me say life skills so so ways of thinking ways of approaching situations I was very into things like NLP and Anthony Robbins and um you might call it a kind of positive mental attitude you know ability to reframe ability to work with your own mental self-disciplines, things like that. Yeah. And as part of doing this fairly structured um, project management work, I started to work one-to-one with people on the teams that I was managing. So I would come in, I was external by that point. I, I kind of have a, a background in internal management consultancy and then went to work for a smaller like niche management consultancy and went out on my own and was doing this project management stuff. So I was working with, I was an external going into large organizations and getting really personally um, invested in the teams that I was working alongside and became known as kind of a bit of a go-to person when people had issues, like personal issues, like um, anxiety or wanting to give up smoking or wanting to lose weight or, you know, my, I have to speak at a funeral. I'm really nervous about somebody said that you might be able to help me with that. And so I, I found myself drawn into these situations naturally. And, you know, I wanted to, I felt a real natural persuasion to work one-to-one with people and 
realized that sometimes I didn't really care very much about large-scale IT projects or project management office or, you know, what, I don't know, risk assessment grid I was supposed to have produced by Thursday. I cared a lot about the individual journeys people were having alongside these large-scale change programs where change is accelerated, pressure is is gets really crazy. Um you know, think we, you get into this have-to situation where people's own resourcefulness and resilience is quite challenged. And, you know, we work long hours. We work in incredibly, like, situations that when you look back now are, are pretty crazy. Mm. Um, and and just having those formative experiences alongside learning this in, information and then realize that what I was doing was coaching. And what was it, do you think, that was drawing people towards you? What were the practices you were already doing that you feel were helping support people and you were getting, like, resulting yeah. in you getting a name for yourself in that area? Yeah. Um, so I, was, I, I became a practitioner of NLP and then a master practitioner of NLP and then started to, uh, like I say, to go on Anthony Robbins kind of uh, – I don't know, these big crazy weekends where you walk over hot coals and sh- shout and jump around a lot, um, <laughs> kind of motivational things. And, and, and I don't want to belittle that because it was great. You know, and when was for, this? For me. Oh, my goodness. Uh, like I say, almost, well, twenty at least 25 years ago, let's say, more than that, actually, towards 30 years ago. Um, and... So I so NLP as a neurolinguistic program as a body of information has discrete tools, techniques, processes, things you do with somebody that somebody through that culminates in something being different. So so um, it could be so that so one of the techniques is called the well-formed outcome. And the well-formed outcome is a series of questions that you put. So say somebody says, I want to be an artist or I want to be a, I don't know, a driving instructor. I want to change my job or I want to meet the person of my job, whatever it might be. It would be a series of questions you might put somebody through. That's just one example of one tool within NLP, but it has distinct stuff you can do. So, you know, like for when people want to... um, give up smoking or lose weight or you know it has something called a, a parts integration which so it's it's working with people's neurology and physiology to kind of shift people's persuasion to how they see a situation or how they experience the world or it, it it's this rich seam of information that once you start to get into it you realize actually you know you're going to learn learn it on a course yourself you're all working on each other. You're having these amazing like moments of clarity, insight, breakthrough. It's a really great experience, but it's it's very um, synergistic with a one-to-one coaching frame, almost unhelpfully so, because you come out with a box of tricks and then you want to just go and do these two people. Okay. You know, so there's a real danger in NLP. But generally, when people come to me and say, oh, "I want to, I want to become a coach. What should I study?" or or what what qualified course should I go on? Quite often I'll say, look, consider picking up an NLP practitioner qualification along the way because you will get personal development. You you know, you'll get challenged, you'll learn things about yourself, you'll start to declutter some of your um, you know, unhelpful beliefs, some helpful ways of looking at things, you'll start to 
pick up some linguistics. There's lots of um, linguistics in in NLP, like towards language rather than away from language. There's embedded commands. There's all sorts of stuff that's fascinating for people that like that kind of mind uh, challenge. Could you say just as a sidebar, for example, towards language rather than away from language? We'll unpack that yes. a little bit. Yeah, it's worth doing. Um, towards language and away from language is 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 very useful as a as a frame of understanding, both for yourself and the people you're working with, and in everyday the everyday workplace or work world. Um, away from language is me saying, um, "I'm fed up of having no money. I'm fed up of being broke. I don't like this job." Um, why does everybody else have a great job and I don't have a great job? You know, I want I I, I want to I, I don't want this type of job anymore. I'm fed up of working manually. I want to work more with my brain or I want to work and as soon as you start to say, I want to work more with my brain or I want to work with people, that's towards language. Mm-hmm. So towards language in a financial the for the financial, you know, I'm fed up of being broke, fed up of not having any money at the end of every month would be I want free income left at the end of every month. I want additional sources of revenue. I want um, to feel differently about money and I want that to be a good thing. So so you're going towards what you want rather than away from what you don't want. And and the the important thing about that is we can get stuck in problem focus, which is I hate my job. I hate my boss. I don't want to do this anymore. Why did I get stuck in? Why did I make the decision to do this? Which is problem state solution state would be i want a job that uses my talents i want a job where i love the people i work with i want a job where i get to travel more or get out out of the house more um i want a job where my commute is really condensed it's it's no more than 15 minutes every day that's towards language and when you're working one-to-one with people it's interesting where they're coming from because often where they're coming from is this stuck state of away from language you know i'm fed up of being overweight i'm fed up of being healthy rather than well what do you want what would be better which is all nlp type questions what would be better than this how would you know when you've got enough money at the end of every month well because i just look at my balance and it would be like this so that's called solution focus yeah hearing the solutions focus frame hearing the importance of language and to the the extent to which it creates our realities um and completely yeah and what i heard jumping back slightly in relation to how you described nlp being something that you do to someone like i heard it's it's a one way of looking at it it's a set of set pieces that you can walk people through it can be. It can be. It's it's NLP. It's it, it's a difficult field to describe because by now, since it so it was it was um, first spawned by um, Richard Bandler and John Grinder way back in the seventies. Um, I think John Grinder was an anthropologist, and um, I think Bandler was a systems thinker or something. I don't I don't quite don't quite remember. And um, they're both around today. And they just started to study excellence in different fields. And so, for example, one of the fields of study that they um, looked at was a gentleman called Milton Erickson, who they realized had mastered 
the art of being able to put people in a trance state just by talking to them. And what was unusual about that was this gentleman was um, living in a farming community in the Midwest of America. He'd had polio that had paralyzed him, um, even facially, to the point where he had slurred speech. He could only see the color purple. So he used to sit in a pair of purple pajamas in a wheelchair, dealing with people from farming communities, somehow managing to trans people, put people in a trance to be able to embed commands that were positive for them or help them reframe on situations of panic or anxiety or, um, I don't know, deferred pain. Where, so there was one story where a, a, a young man had lost a limb and was having this random pain. Um, I forgot what they call it, but this ghost pain or whatever they call it from Phantom the limb, limb that had been severed. Phantom limb, that's it, thank you. Um, and being able to trans that young man into a situation where that wasn't happening. And so they studied his lang language patterns and they realized he was he was doing something very artful in the way that he structured his language. And they decoded that, which was one thing they're very good at. So um, an, uh, an example of an embedded command might be, um, do you want to brush your teeth before I ask you a story, uh, before I read you a bedtime story or after I read you a bedtime story? The embedded command being, you are going to brush your teeth. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, it's, or it's the wisdom to know um, when you're instructing somebody, it's useful to tell them what you want them to do rather than what you don't want them to do. So those motorway signs drive me crazy that say, don't drink and drive, because all the, all the mind hears is, drink and drive so so they would be more useful to say stay sober it's like saying to a child um don't run on the road all the child hears is run on the road you you need to say to a child stay on the pavement it's one of those really obvious obvious things but we're not coded we're not wired to do that we tend to sh you know we would scream at someone stop shouting yeah. rather than calm yourself down be quiet yeah. and um you know, don't use your phone while you're driving. Oh, I need to call my mom, yeah. you know, because that's what the brain hits. So they so they kind of – that's just one rabbit hole these guys went down, Bandler and Grindo. That's just one rabbit hole they went down. So it becomes a body of information that – I studied, for, studied it for many years and could still get fascinated with it, but at some point you have to put something down and think, okay, there's other stuff I could be learning. Um the the To come back to the original point, what brought you to coaching – that was one of those things that enabled me to do to work one to one with people even before I realized I wanted to work one to one with people because I'd go on a coach on a NLP course and I'd come back into the workplace and somebody would start to talk and say ah I've done something we could do do you want to sit down with me and do you want to have a and then started to get these great results with people um you know and then and and some of it was I don't know it seemed really graced and gifted like somebody's um Close in the family, lost a young person in the family. They asked somebody to speak at the funeral. He was devastated about the loss of this young person, but he needed to hold it together at the funeral. And I'd learn eye accessing cues and and physiology stuff and breathing techniques all through the NLP information that I was able to go in a side room with him, teach him how to hold his body, teach him how to breathe, teach him where to look, teach him what you know, some subtle embedded um, language commands and had had that whole thing go really well, 
in a situation where he needed it to go well rather than he, he you know, well, interestingly. So, you know, he's saying, I'm worried I'm going to fall apart, which is what the brain does. Like, don't fall apart at the funeral. Don't don't look like an idiot. Don't lose it. Don't because, And then the brain codes to lose it, fall apart, mm. look an idiot, mm. rather than flipping into how do you want – I want to be calm. I want to be rational. I want to – feel strong and powerful and if you were to feel strong and powerful where would you feel that in your body i'd feel it here okay and if that feeling in your body were a color what color would it be it would be blue what kind of blue it would be bright vivid blue okay so as you imagine that bright vivid blue color in your chest how would you stand i'd stand like this and then so you just kind of code it into someone's physiology so you can see for those like everyday bites you know like going for an interview, doing a big presentation, um, speaking at a meeting, whatever it might be, all of those like everyday foibles, anxieties, things that that by the time, you know, you're 20 years in, you've, they've fallen away as stuff you used to be concerned about perhaps. But one of the one of the things that accelerates them falling away as fears or foibles or insecurities is realizing the coding of the brain and, and thinking, okay, so I'm catastrophizing. I'm planning for disaster here because I'm planning what my mind's going to be doing if this goes really badly. What if it went really well? What would that be like? Yeah. Okay, this it would be like this. Okay, so go towards this. That's all I'm going to focus on is it's going to be great. I'm going to absolutely love it. I'm, it's going to fly. I'm going to feel like this, which sounds really like – all, almost too easy but when you start to study how people think that do really well this is this is why they would call it the science of success sometimes or certainly Anthony and robin would call it the science of success is when you ask successful people how they get that how they're able to get up and speak to an audience of 500 people and absolutely love it what are you thinking i'm thinking this how's it feeling in your body it's feeling this does that make sense Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And it is fascinating. And and mm. I notice I've I've through questions and prompts taken us down a, a rabbit hole deep into NLP. And this was part of your your wayfinding towards coaching. So you'd mm. begun practicing working with people on a one-to-one yes. basis. Yes. And and how did you then transition towards what um we might more generally call coaching yes um so i took a decision that this is what i wanted to do and um and i think i rebranded my company i the, so there was an agent at the time that had been getting me some of the project management work um and I remember saying to him, I, I don't want to do this project, IT project management anymore. I want to do this thing called coaching. And he, I remember him saying to me, um, forget it. He said, nobody knows what coaching is. And even if they did know what it was, they're never going to pay money for it. He said, you will never make your income or your money as a coach. <laughs> and it was fantastic because in that moment, I still remember four mica table tables, styrofoam cups of tea and coffee as we were, I was talking to him in this canteen. Um completely galvanized my thinking because I knew he was wrong. And I don't know why I knew he was wrong, but I just really knew he was wrong. Like I didn't hesitate. I knew he was wrong. Now normally somebody, you know, he's an agent, he's out finding 
people like me, contractors like me work, yeah. I would, I should and would normally have listened. But something inside of me just said, no, 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 you're wrong. I know, I, I know my heart knows this is, this is my path. And then it became a matter of um, speaking to speaking to people, either networking or recruitment agents or people that were building projects um, about the need to work with people. And, and for a time, I was kind of struggling both. So people were kind of taking me on on my CV of these, like we used to call them BPR, business process reengineering, you know, where you just tackle this big transformation program or bring two huge corporations together or something. And um, people would kind of take me on of that. But but where I could get into the interview and start to talk about the work that I wanted to do, the culture stuff that I'd been doing on my previous project, the one where I'd been doing all the NLP and working one-to-one with people, um, and even starting to run small group events um, for people, just off my own bat, kind of thinking, right, does anybody want a bit of a masterclass? We didn't even call it masterclass there. Does anybody want to learn more about this NLP stuff? And starting to do stand-up around that stuff. Mm. Um, So it was a mixture of kind of, Declaring what I wanted to do, putting myself forward for the kind of people and culture type roles, but also starting to work one-to-one with people and starting to um, describe that to people and and pitch for doing two, you know, two different things. For a while, I was sort of doing both. Um, along that, during that time, um, I began to work on the idea for the coaching manual. So now I'm going back maybe 25 years ago, um, started to work on the idea of, well, if I can't, because right back then there weren't many books written on coaching and there certainly weren't coaching qualification courses you could go on or any of the construct that we look at now. Um, And so I started to wonder, I'd always wanted to write and I'd always written stories and things like that as a child and, and, written short stories and things as a as a young adult um I started to think okay I would like to write the book that is missing that is a kind of Haynes guide a manual that tells people what this is this one-to-one work you know the structure of it the and here I was informed by NLP because NLP has what's called um presuppositions and operating beliefs and so I was questioning what are the presuppositions and the operating beliefs of a coach which is why that's why one of the things that the coaching manual does is look at the mindset of a coach what does a what does a coach think what beliefs do they operate from and what do they intend to do in situations so I was trying again a bit like Bandler and Grinder I'm not sure I've ever thought thought this I was trying to deconstruct it in order to make it available and accessible for other people all the time doing personal development work and going on training courses and you know I was self-employed then um I was single I I basically used to spend all my spare cash on on learning experiences and books and I was just a mad reader I didn't watch tv in those days um you know I was meditating I was just I was completely immersed in this figuring life out thing and then just sharing that yeah and did you do any coach training like was there i I absolutely hear the piece around nlp and anthony robbins stuff which of course is very much related but um recognizing now as we sit here in late 2023 the proliferation of 
coach education offer in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different formats. Were you like, was there anything in the UK or perhaps something on conference call in the US? To be able to do coaching or be able to learn coaching? To be able to study a formal course? No, no. I've never been on a, on a coach training okay. course. I've never been on one because there wasn't one. Yeah. I remember finding so – so Miles Downey was practicing then, mm. and I remember Miles um, offered a one-to-one course to teach people how to coach um and i don't think i could afford it at the time so i kind of just dismissed it but i did read his book uh effective coaching miles is an amazing coach and he's a complete master um and and later became be, became somebody that i met and know and and, and respect he gave me um an acknowledgement for for this book the brilliant coaching and and really he's a really considered gent um I also met John Whitmore. He was a mentor of mine back in the day. Um, but apart from Miles Downey Effective Coaching and John Whitmore Coaching for Performance and Coactive Coaching, I think there was only three books that anybody knew of. Those were the three books. And there were no coaching courses that I could find. Um, there, there, just wasn't, there wasn't a coach qualification. You know, Miles's would have been sit with Miles and learn from Miles kind yeah. of thing. And so slowing down on that, how I encountered you first was through a reading list on a coaching course. And so I'm a part-time faculty member with the Academy of Executive Coaching. And interestingly, the three books that you've just listed other than your own are on the reading list for the main program there, the flagship program, the Practitioner Diploma, which I had already begun facilitating on and indeed uh, I'm a graduate from some years ago and was beginning to work on the coaching skills certificate, which is a two day yeah. more entry level course. And um, it has a reading list of one book and it is the coaching manual. I've got my copy here. Um, right. And that's how I first encountered you was um, thinking, well, I'm facilitating on the course. I should probably read the book and beginning to dig in. And I, I perhaps we'll talk about this in a, more in a moment, but was so struck by the clarity of how you structure introducing coaches as a, coaching as a way of practicing one-on-one -on -one support um, mm -hmm. in a written text. But tracking back briefly, because I'm fascinated by, um, well, both those authors that you seem to have encountered and you, and you said the one-on-one -on -one stuff with with Miles, who's been a um, was a guest several episodes ago on this podcast, and and was wonderful in, uh, interviewed by Robbie Swale. How did you connect with Sir John Whitmore and and get to um, a place where he was mentoring you? Um, I that felt very great. So I cheeky as anything sent him. <laughs> I I asked I asked for him. Uh, an acknowledgement for the coaching manual and probably because in those days he wasn't deluged because nobody else was right. You know, there wasn't a, a great deal of, of stuff written. He agreed to take a look at the manuscript and I remember it was in the, day, in the days of phone calls when you had phone calls with people <laughs> and he agreed to have a phone call with me and he said, um, 
he's a real gentleman. Uh, and he said, you know, he said, I picked this book up. He said, and I wanted to disagree. He said, I found myself, you know, because you have such a clear writing side. He said, I wanted to disagree with what you were saying. And he said, I've been right through it. He said, and I can't find anything that I disagree with. <laughs> and he gave me the ultimate, and I think it's still on the book. He gave me the ultimate, um, he gave me the ultimate testimonial for it. He basically said, and he's got the best-selling book on the subject, and he basically said, the most comprehensive book on the practice of coaching I've come across, if anybody wishes to become a one-to-one -one coach and reads only one book about it, this could well be that book. That's how generous <laughs> he was. Because he was basically saying, you don't even have to read mine, just read this one. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was fantastic. And I remember we were we we were both booked to speak at um I'm sure it was some conference center attached to a prison in London. It could have been like Wandsworth Prison or something. But anyway, we booked he, I, I was to speak first and I was speaking on the subject of um, coaching as a style of management and leadership, which is which is the main thrust of what I do professionally. I have a team of people that, coach, like, that teach managers and leaders how to adopt these conversational styles and principles as a style of working and uh, as a style of managing others. And I've got this whole conversation about that. And so I'm setting up to speak in the days where I hadn't done a great deal of public speaking um, on the circuit. And sat in the front row all six foot three of him um is sir john whitmore and i'd never met him before and i was absolutely terrified and so i did the, like held it together and did this talk and he came straight up to me and he said congratulate he was so generous i can't explain i don't think i've ever met anybody where he's, he was so like heart-centered congratulate that was so good i am so delighted to have been at this you have the, what you're saying is so needed because he felt he felt so strongly about this whole subject it wasn't it wasn't an occupation for him he, you know for anybody that followed his career and where and how where he ended up going in terms of his spirituality and and the the voice and the conversation he wanted to, to um, develop in organizations. Um, he felt so strongly about the, the need to shift and change culture in organizations, how people speak to each other. Um, and then we were just about to go into another set and neither of us was really excited. It was some HR type thing that neither of us were really interested in. And he, and he said to me, shall we bunk off for this and just go and get a cup of tea <laughs> and have a chat? Oh, my day was made. It was just fantastic. So he and I bunked off for 90 minutes and had the most amazing chat and became for any, you know, he would, we would see each other fairly regularly for lunch or dinner if he was doing something. Um, and he just, he just, I, I don't know, he was incredibly generous. He, I remember him speaking up at something and he was asked a question and I was down on the front row somewhere and he said, actually, uh, that's not a question for me. That's a question for Julie Starr here. She could answer. Julie, stand up and answer that question because you, that's what you do. It was just yeah. why would you give the stage to somebody else? Yeah. But that's what that's who he was. That's he. He was so secure in what he did and who he was. Um, yeah. And actually, he ended up putting a group of females together. So he 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 was a real ambassador for like a champion of women in organisation. And he would say. Women are the future. Women will make the difference. Um, he was sort of alluding to the divine feminine before anybody, you know, coined the term the divine feminine in 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 regular speak. He was he's basically saying the men have messed it up. We need the women now in charge. And so he formed a group of about thirty of us, 
Um, that and it was a group that um, sadly sort of disbanded when when John passed. But we used to get together. Um, we all went over to France and did a th- whole thing where we hung out in a farmhouse. It was really great because he wanted he wanted what he saw as influential women or women that might be powerful to come together. I can't even remember what he called it, but yeah, he was a he was an incredible incredible man. Yeah, and. Uh... I've got uh, some uh, sense of him on a very small level from watching um, a couple of YouTube videos, old stuff, and um, yes. hearing other people speak of him, uh, yes. some of the, the stuff that Tim Galway said about him, and of course, reading Coaching for Performance. And, um, you know, what a, a, a kind of, I get the sense at least, a, a founding figure of what coaching um could be in in the UK and um, a, a profound um, influence, I think, on many many people that have that have fallen. It's such a wonderful um, bit of reassurance to hear that yes. serendipity was well at yeah. work and that you have had a firsthand positive experience of him. Yeah, completely, completely. And I'm not sure how long it is how long it is since he passed. It must be. I don't know, maybe eight, nine, ten years, and um, I can still feel him around. It's very strange. Um, his book still outsells my book, <laughs> so and he's not even around. And I smile when it's you know occasionally I'll I'll have a I'll put the word coaching into Amazon or something, and he's still it's still there. Yeah. And I think it's because it's this timeless conversation around these behaviors and it's very heart-based and it's very you know the more the the later editions got bigger and bigger as he started to add in you know the importance for kind of humanity of these behaviors he was very interconnected interdependent which I think is why he was he was kind of selfless in his generosity to practitioners like myself that you could see were coming up and 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 had a job to do going forward Um, and he was very much of that whole legacy mindset in terms of what he leaves behind yeah Absolutely. And and the other thing that comes up for me in relation to that is it somewhat does him a disservice in my view, the the um reductive sense that oh he's the guy that coined the grow model. Because I think it was although clearly an important part of that, it's all he's also done so much more. And and there is so much more um depth to how he presents his thoughts on on practice and um and the importance of of the heart and the spirit and um all the other things beyond the mind that are so profoundly important i'm glad you mentioned that because the grow model i almost had the debate with him about the well i kind of did have the debate about the grow model and i'm not going to try and quote him because that would be inappropriate i know that what he felt about the grow model was I'm going to be really careful because I don't want to invent something that he didn't say. I if I say he knew it had its place and he knew it wasn't coaching. Um that's that's true. And if I could speak on my view on the grow model because of that I am certain um it stabilizes on a bike it helps somebody get it get their head around a generative conversation so a towards solution conversation um it has its real limitations in that as soon as managers especially because it's used as a quick 
quick, ready tool to teach managers how to coach. Um, if it's not explained fully and if they aren't taken through a process of, of understanding how it becomes stabilizers on a bike that you can let go at any point, um, that over time it becomes limiting. And the thing that I get frustrated about is when people think coaching is the grow model or the cigar model or any of those formulaic, you know, convenient words. Um, when people start to think, oh, I can coach because I can do the grow model. I know these, I know these letters and I know what it's so I can coach. And of course, my team are going in often on the tail of some failed manager as coach program that's been born on you know been built on these building blocks of the grow model and then people haven't figured out for themselves how it's a way of thinking how it's um how it's what you bring to a conversation in terms of a mindset and what you think your job is to do um how it's you know, there are all these underpinning beliefs and principles that enable you to create this space of a of a different style of conversation. And so we're we're often trying to unpack people, kind of undo people from the grow model and just saying, okay, put this to one side. Um, which is why which is why I developed the coaching path, which is more domains of activity where you have a purpose there's yes there's a beginning a middle and a completion stage to a conversation but here we're we're trying to do this here we're trying to do this so there's an intention it's an intention based activity rather than it is tick this you know get this and then tick get this and then tick move on move on move on um and and if i had john here he wouldn't he wouldn't disagree with that so he I'm not saying he'd agree with it either. What I'm saying is, yes, him and Tim Galway put this pattern together. Yes, it absolutely broke open a conversation and helped people get their heads around doing something different in a conversation. And yes, it has its use. And at some point, you have to jettison it like sandbags on a balloon, in the basket of a balloon, because it was it becomes an impediment to progress. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I wholly concur that it is a a waypoint on a much larger journey, and that it is of service to no one to get stuck at that particular resting point, um, uh, because there is so much more available. Although that you may choose to to move past it um, on the bigger journey, I want to take a step back to something you said a few minutes ago about beginning to put together what became the coaching manual and really dig into like how you went about that. So just to name it, your book, The Coaching Manual, which I judge is probably the most successful books mm. that you've written in terms of sales, is now in its fifth edition. I'm guessing here it's about 20 years old, um, just yeah. over. Yeah, and just over. I'd be fascinated to learn the the early stages of you beginning to collect and collate what ultimately became the first edition? Um, so the th I think the smartest thing I did was to get myself a writing coach. So oh. a lady called Marcia Yudkin. And Marcia Yudkin, um, 
haven't been in contact with her since then, I don't think. She's a lady in America and she was, so I would email her stuff. Like, I'm here's the plan for my book. Here's the list of contents. Here's what I think it's, you know. And so she would, she was very, very good, very diligent, very structured about having me be intentional about what I wanted to write. Um, so what do you want the book to do? Who is it for? Um, she sort of made me write the CV of the book, which was incredibly useful because that helped me get the deal on the book with Pearson. So, um, you know, she asked me to describe my perfect reader. She asked me to talk about the function of the book. She she focused me on on something called the voice of a book, which is so um, the mainstay of why the one of the mainstays of why the coaching manual is successful because it has this very simplistic voice mm. that is an adult adult conversation um, that isn't theoretical or jargon. She and she she took no prisoners in her feedback when I used to write stuff because I was squirreling away. You know. For anybody writing on here, you'll know the thing that you come up against the most in, when you're writing is yourself yeah. and your own ego and that Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder that says, you need to sound cleverer than that yeah. or you need to say that in more fancy terms. And she just sent something back to me and say, that just sounds like consultancy speak, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand any of it, which was fantastic. I mean, I felt brutalized on the other end of this because, <laughs> um, you know, you kind of send it off like homework to your teacher. So she was absolutely formative in establishing the structure which it, it has a real sense of um a structured conversation about the topic i had made declarations to her things like um i don't want it to be a lot of just case studies and people talking about working in ici or glaxo smith klein or whoever i don't want it i want it to be about the reader and not about me and my experiences. And so she just had me declutter the whole time because she kept me true to my promises about what I wanted the book to be. That's a that's a fantastic as a a, a regular returner to the book, that is um a central word, uh, slightly paraphrasing, but uncluttered. That the clarity of signal and um the lack of unnecessary material around it. Yes, yeah. yes, and and she was so so. I might talk about this a bit later, but writing is a is a huge passion of mine. I'm I'm known for being a coach, but actually I consider myself a writer first and foremost. And I write I write novels for young adults. So alongside of all of this, I studied creative writing. So I was going on writers' summer schools and retreats that were for writers and um you know to learn the craft of writing and through the when you learn the craft of writing you learn something called writing spare which is no more no less than what is needed in that mm. so um and there's something called the the um crystal factor the is it the crystal ratio or something which is where if you use so basically clever is not clever in writing if you want something to be accessible um long words long sentences complicated statements create this fog factor 
No, it's not the crystal ratio. It's the fog factor index, but you get the crystal mark for, for a piece of writing that's that's crystal clear. It's called the fog factor index. And the fog factor index is driven by words with many syllables, um, longer sentences, and adding more, like layering more than one thought into a sentence. So, so the fact that the coaching manual by its fifth edition is honed within an inch of its life. There's a there's a saying that I really adhere to, which is easy reading follows hard writing. And and the quality of anything is in this edit because you'll write something and then you'll you're forced to distill it into its into its simplest form, which is what's called writing spare, like nothing spare. Right. The the statement is the statement. Right. And and what having a writing coach Certainly with Marcia Yudkin and having right, I have writing coaches for my uh, young adult novels. What that teaches you is to wake up to what you're writing, not what you think you're writing, but have someone say, I don't understand that. You know, now my um, editor at Pearson is for many years has been Eloise Cook and um, and she's very good at just at just pointing and saying that that's not adding any value. I'm not if there's some if there's a point you're making there I'm not so I think the clarity is is both diligence and and study and and clear intention on my part but it's also having people reflect that back at you and saying not quite sure that's doing what you want it to do amazing and so how long from the the point of inception to creating the first edition how long was that journey I don't quite remember, but I think it was it was quite some time. So I I would think from inception to getting the deal, because these things take so much longer than mm. than you hope or you imagine. Um, probably an eighteen month period from writing it, getting the deal, um, and certainly having this structured, this being taught this discipline about writing the CV for the book, being really clear about there's something called evidence of need, which is um, a publishing phrase that means demonstrate that people want this book, that people um, are seeking this kind of information. And then evidence of need is one thing, but but proof of credibility, which like you're the right person to write this book. Um, I don't know that this is all still true, but in those days, I was told by Marcia Yudkin, this is what you need to do to get a deal on a book. And I actually got two deals on that book. I got one from Hodder and one from uh, Pearson, which was which was unheard of, but it was because I was so schooled and I was so clear. And, and it, as the time was right, it was one of those, you know, synchronistic events where the coaching field was emergent. And there was very little. I remember one publisher's review had said, um, "This is a growing field. This is the book that's needed. If you don't sign this book, you'll regret it." Which was I was I was amazed at, yeah. you know, because I just thought I was writing a book that I hope will be. And and so the, it was timing, and and me having this structured background of NLP and unpacking things and wanting, you know, aspiring to what was missing you know so I think there was there was a genuine sentiment for me which was I don't want to talk about me I don't want to impress anybody from what I'm right I just want to write the book that I needed when I was struggling and, and frustrated and couldn't find 
you know, what I needed. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, there was a lot of things came together. And I don't want anybody listening, that makes it sound like a magic trick. It's actually not such a magic trick. It, there is a, there's a structure and a discipline. There's a, there's a, there's a commitment because the, there will be other people listening to this that perhaps want to write a book and, yeah. and will think, well, everything's been written. Um, everything hasn't been written because the world's changing and people's needs and appetites are changing. And, and if you've got something to say and you think it's a genuine, authentic self-expression of your voice and your work and you, you have something that you think is a contribution then don't let the fact that there's lots of other books on the subject being written because yours hasn't. Yeah. As long as you're not corrupted by, and it's very tempting to think, oh, well, trauma's a thing, isn't it? I should write about trauma and coaching, or I should write about diversity and inclusion, or I should talk about whatever it might be, AI and coaching, because that's the thing, because that's not where to write a book from. Don't write it from the head, write it from the heart. Yeah, yeah. And to what extent did the first edition being published switch you, uh, or rather the level of your business? Uh, so the other thing I know is uh, probably some of my judgment coming in here too, that some people, many people nowadays write books to make a step forward in their career in their business as a platform yes. from which to get yes. speaking gigs and more profiles yes. and I, yes. I i get the sense from you indeed it might be better framed as a question that that's not what you were doing it was something that felt authentically right to you but i wonder what the outcome was as relates to your coaching business um so I, I, I think you're giving me being more generous towards me than perhaps is appropriate. I did write it and hope. <laughs> oh, this is gonna make me a coach. This is gonna make this is gonna mean I can just get coaching work and I won't have to um kind of corrupt myself by doing all this be like better paid management consultancy type roles. Um and so I was, we, I was saying, I was as giddy as a kipper when the book came out. I was like, oh, this is going to change my life. It's going in WH Smith's, it's going in Waterstones. Cause, because th that was the incredible thing I pulled off was to get a, a, a job, a, 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 an agreement with um, the biggest business book publisher in Europe. So I, I was cock a hoop thinking, oh, this is going to be marvellous. <laughs> yeah, the There's some amazing phrases coming out, yeah. <laughs> and of course, day one, everybody's happy, you know, family, friends, like, woohoo. And then nothing happened, like, literally, nothing <laughs> happened. And I remember I had this moment, and, and, and it's every author's dream. I had this moment. I walked into Waterstones in Derby. I was in, living in Derbyshire at the time, and there was a woman sat on a chair, you know, they, they have these kind of places to have a quick look at a book. She was reading my book. She was actually reading my book. And I walked over to her and said, oh, I wrote that book. And she looked up at me and just say, you're a crazy person. I, like, why are you? And I realized she didn't believe me. I thought, oh, okay, then this isn't working out at all like I planned. Um. So, yeah, that was my moment. I did see someone reading my book and they didn't believe I'd written it. So, no matter. Um, so, absolutely nothing happened. And I 
I ended up doing um, a, a kind of consultancy, ch supporting a change program, coaching all the senior exec on a on a big change program for DHL over in Prague. So they were merging all their IT centers from all over Europe into one location in Prague. So I was running a team um, where we were doing like induction training and people work and culture work, which is what I love to do. And I was doing one-to-one -one training with a lot of the senior team that were um, key to delivering the change. And I just and it was a big program that I, kept me occupied for almost two years. And I kind of forgot about the book because I realized actually nothing's happening with the book. So I might as well do this work that I'm loving doing because it's coaching and it's talking about life skills. We were doing stuff on emotional maturity and all the stuff that I'd been learning and wanting to share um, and getting really, you know, really great results with it. So I got myself busy doing that for a couple of years. Then I kind of came back to the UK and got started to get involved in other things and realizing actually I'm getting invited to speak to mm. some really tiny Midlands network of coaches mm. or it could be some group of life coaches have found me have found the book and they're getting it so literally I would go and um you know on a Tuesday or a Thursday night would go and sit in a room with eight people that were interested in coaching and I talk about coaching to them and and I absolutely loved it. And I still have really fond memories of of kind of cutting my teeth in, in terms of realizing what people found useful and what was less useful and, and you know, how what to take them in terms of information. And so it, it, it nothing happened. Then really small things happen. And then suddenly you find yourself on stage, you know, at some expo talking to a few hundred people and you think, wow, that got quick. That went quick. But actually it didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's a frame that shows up in so many places. So being connected to a number of coaches that are early in their journeys and leave a, a program, graduate successfully and head out into the wider world to set up their businesses and of course it's not the case for everybody because everybody's story is different and people have different things in their background but the, the frame that you've done a thing and how long it takes for the rest of the world to catch up with catch the value yeah, of that yeah. thing um and and begin to pay attention and for you to start getting people approaching you to be connected to yeah. you because of that yeah. thing can yeah. it often be many months if not years um which is fascinating and to... in the meantime so so it's it, it it's really great that you observe that because there is um it's the kind of buddhist non-attachment thing isn't it there's right. this thing that says um chop wood carry water and and I, you know, when I had the book, I thought my life was going to change. I thought, whoa, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be known as a coach. It means I can go off and do coaching and nothing else. And that didn't happen. And so I just got busy chopping wood, carrying water. But it was the work I loved to do. Yeah. So I was working with people. I was taking them these emotional intelligence or emotional maturity principles. I was helping them um, be successful. I was doing the one-to-one -one coaching work. I was, I, was being I was getting busy doing what I love to do. And then suddenly it came back almost when I'd given up on it, which is the kind of Buddhist non-attachment thing. Yeah. It's like I just let that go and thought, okay, I wrote that book. Nothing happened. No matter. I'm loving what I'm doing and, and, and having a, a, a real grand adventure doing it. Yeah. And then suddenly it starts to come back again. But not, and this is this is the kind of manifestation principle, isn't it? it? It comes back in a way that you didn't expect. 
because it's literally 12 men and a dog out from some East Midlands coaching. Would you mind coming yeah. sitting in this tiny room somewhere off the M1 to talk about this in a travel lodge meeting room or something like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so for anybody listening, like trying to mix, because we all have these quests, these, these desires, these like one day, maybe this could be true for me. Um, stay stay intentional around that absolutely you know don't don't give up your dream and don't give up your happiness when the dream doesn't happen you know because the chop wood carry water thing you know joyfully um that's all part of the journey of of just not being so attached to it that you're kind of pushing it away or it's not coming in the way I want or I'm really annoyed about that and you start to kind of push things away from you you know that internal need for control and resistance and all that tension and frustration and then that turns to angst and then suddenly what should have been a good thing is now a real you know brings despair every time I look at the book on the shelf that's not going to get you where you want to be getting you where you want to be is put your heart into whatever you're doing keep doing that keep sending out that dream and then you know joyfully chop wood carry water and see what happens yeah and the other thing I love about that is that you are you're standing more in your locus of control. You are staying yes. centered in your agency yes. and what you can do, whether it be over the next hour or the next day or the next week, rather than putting more of your focus than is helpful on this supposed magical island in the future that if I keep doing this, I'll finally get to where you probably don't have a locus of it's it's well yes. out with even your circle of Completely. influence Completely. And, and that it may come back as a result of the journey you take and you may find yourself standing there one day and indeed when you do it's probably going to look and feel and sound a lot different to what you thought it would and you'll already be your gaze will already have shifted to another magical island in the future um, yeah. it's it's a really powerful really powerful tale and that sounds like something that you you are experiencing yourself or have experienced yourself i think to an extent yeah i mean much earlier in my career probably almost in a previous life when i was a professional um musician it was always about getting to the next level and another yeah. gig and of course when you do that's wonderful and the pressure is higher and the expectation is greater and the the conditions are different and and so forth and i think as probably 99.9% of coaches out there my private practice isn't as strong and robust as i would like it to be and i hope some of the work i've done on myself and the practice over the last couple of years certainly has got me more centered in a place of and that's okay because it's exactly where it is right now and yeah. i keep yeah. chopping wood and carrying water and showing up to yeah every client as fully as I possibly can and realizing that regardless of um, what I might think about their circumstances or how they've come to me, um, they are the most important client and they're the person that I need to be serving as best I can in that moment with yes. the acceptance that that may lead to the biggest piece of work I ever get, or it may lead to them um, yes. having minor change in their life and indeed a million things in between. And that those 
like I I can essentially have a, a very low level of control over the outcome, but I can absolutely su- support what's happening before me and and what I'm involved in. And and listening to you say that the it. it it causes me to think sometimes so so back in the day um there wasn't a career structure for a an executive coach for me to point at and say i want I want that ladder. I want to be on that ladder, and there's the rungs on that ladder, and the rungs are this much per hour, this much per hour, this level of individual, this type of organization. Um, and so I it 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 could be a bit more creatively chaotic, let's say. Yeah. And I could be a bit more intentional about I I just want to speak truth to power. I just want to I want to influence the influencers. That's kind of how I had it. I want to influence the influencers. And and I I like to travel. I love to travel. I like to get myself in exciting situations. Um and and so that was that was driven from that. When I hear you talk, you've kind of got all of these kind of pathfinders in front of you that's kind of carved out this route that says it looks success looks in the coaching field looks like this um i think it's useful to to keep throwing that away because what i have found is um as soon as you get fixed in what it should look like that starts to constrain possibility and so for example i don't just coach um as i've said i consider myself a writer but um I I have a port, a short portfolio of people that I work one to one with, and all, all those people are in very interesting situations. It's a complete privilege to be operating at that level in organisations, and and yet I don't want to grow that list any longer. Um, I have a training team of people that go into organisations and and teach managers and leaders how to coach. So we've unpacked that's that's what this book is about. It's a much shorter read for the busy manager that hasn't got time to become a coach and doesn't want to become a coach. Yeah. They just want to, you know, use these conversational skills in everyday. So for those that are audio only, that's brilliant coaching. That's oh sorry yes, this is brilliant coaching. So the the coaching manual is obviously the first one. Um, Brilliant Coaching is my second book. That's now in its fourth edition. And the mentoring manual is the sort of companion to the coaching manual. So the mentoring manual is now uh, the number one book in the UK on the subject. So that's that's really taken off. Um, and I think it's because it does the same job as coaching and it's doing it at a time when organizations are looking more at workplace mentoring as a kind of low cost or no cost intervention to support people to learn and grow and develop. Um, what was I saying? Um, so I, I'm doing lots of different things and I'm also writing creatively. And I, so so my actual career is is quite idiosyncratic. It doesn't actually look like probably what anybody else is doing. And in that, you can be self-determining. I think this is the lovely thing about, about doing this one-to-one work with, with this heart intention that says, I'm driven by a real clear sense of purpose to support people um, to grow and learn myself and to share that growth and learning with others and let that be my contribution, my love expressed in the world, if you like. 
and then let that take whatever form it might be because you interviewing people on podcasts is as much a contribution to the coaching field as writing the next best thing or doing the next best piece on the speaking circuit or the best workshop or the best training course or the best whatever it might be and so you have to look at yourself I think yes be informed perhaps inspired by possibility what you're seeing shape the world you're seeing shape shaping around you but navigating all the time by your own breadcrumbs that are saying actually my individual path seems to help have me going in this direction and stay true to that because I think there's a real danger that we and this is what I mean about having my ladder up against everybody else's wall I, I you know you end up with climbing a ladder but it's against somebody else's wall and you get fa- fairly high up it and then think why don't why is this not joyful why does this not feel like it should have felt when I was planning to do this five or ten years ago and it's because it's not your ladder and it's not your wall and you you know you're supposed to and it could be for anybody listening you're supposed to do this as part of something else and your contribution is more in this sector or with this community or in this type of situation you know it's it's really classic for people to almost want to rub themselves out and draw themselves again when they become a coach whatever Mm. that means and so they lose everything you know I used to be this amazing recruitment consultant or I used to be this amazing school teacher or I used to be this amazing whatever it is and but now I need to be a coach and I've seen coaches I met coaches they're all like this and so I need to be more like that it's just it's it it yeah, it's sad when where people end up from that because this idea of throwing the baby out with the bathwater literally becomes this fatal mistake, yeah. which is you had this territory of the NHS and nursing or the medical profession or you had this territory of education or the military or whatever it is, what your background, and you threw away the whole rich experience of the military for the last 20 years to try and get into investment banking because you met lots of people that were doing that and you thought that was where the money was or the prestige was or the, yeah. and you yeah. could have been do- dealing with PTSD and military, you know, th- because that's what it's like. Life's got a plan for you. You might have one, but if you can find the one life's got for you, it's all going to go a lot more smoothly. Yeah. And that taking that last point, as a a jumping off point to talk about because I really heard going way back to much earlier in our conversation your piece around coaching found you and that there was a um there was a plan happening as you moved forward and kept staying connected to what your heart was telling you as the outcome of the book was you were gaining more and more traction what were the big rungs on the ladder between well over the last 20 years where have where has it taken you as you've grown your business and developed your career i think the major decision i made early on which i i got a lot of criticism disagreement with um that i had to let go of was I'd written the coaching manual, which would have set me up nicely to teach coaches how to coach. Mm. And I chose not to do that. 
And I have my friend is Kim Morgan that runs Barefoot Coaching. I know she's also been um, a guest Previous on this guest, show. Yeah. yeah, she's an amazing lady. Um, and I love her to bits. And she does a really good, great job of doing that. Um, and the coaching manual, if I wanted some credibility in order to do that, would have set me up very nicely to, to start to run open training courses to teach coaches how to coach. Um, as I'd already said, my background was business, change management, working with developing leadership and mindset and emotional maturity and emotional intelligence in organizations. And the big decision I took was to stay within the framework of large organizations. So to stay B2B rather than go B2C. So, uh, you know, business to business rather than business to customer. Um, so I chose to. Um, set up as a provider of coach training to managers and leaders within the context of a, a manager role. Because for me, I believe, and it wasn't always the most lucrative thing I could have done. For me, I believe that's where the future of coaching lies. That's where the possibility of these conversational skills, this mindset, this acumen that we we acquire when we learn to coach that's where the most traction is that's where the real opportunity and the real need is in the world mm. um i know that's a big statement but um what the coaching field has done very artfully um and and i've possibly helped with this is they've wrapped and packaged these beliefs these behaviors um like great listening like effective questioning like the ability to give great feedback like the ability to build rapport and trust and openness like the ability to flex the style of our influence in a, in a conversation for being more directive to less directive to facilitate somebody else's thoughts to help somebody um think and act for themselves what the coaching profession has done uh, very elegantly um is to wrap and package that and call that coaching and obviously that's a made up term um it's not so coaching isn't archetypal in the way that mentoring is archetypal we could talk about that separately mm. coaching is a bundle of ideas a bundle of behaviors a bundle of abilities skills and um, if you want to put nlp into that frame you really start to create a formulaic approach to it but but coaching is a bundle of ideas that've been wrapped and packaged and and then badged branded as coaching and then you've got qualifications in it then you've got competing frameworks in it then you've got you know laws and rules and regulations around it but actually this is the it is all born from the truth of our interdependency and this is why Coaching will never go out of fashion. People used to talk to me in um, in the days when I was first setting up. People would say, oh, it's a fad. It's a fashion. It's like BS 5750 or it's like TQM or it's like um, whatever the circles were. I can't remember what the circles were. But anyway, uh, what, all of what those. What are those? Say more about the BS 5750 and TQM. What were those? Total quality. Man T TQM was total quality management. So, so. Back in the day, TQM was everything because it was a standard, and there'll be there'll be a kite mark for BS fifty seven fifty. You know, it's all of those things that come in, like like BPR, business process redesign, was a a thing. 
you know, it was a management consultancy thing like Agile. Okay. Don't want to say too much about Agile, <laughs> but Agile is a thing. Yeah. You know, it's like the waterfall method yeah. in software yeah. development. It's those, it's a thing. And people were saying to me, ah, oh, this coaching, it's a fad. It's a fashion. It's a thing. The reason why it's not a fad or a fashion and it's not going anywhere, it might, hopefully it might just ameliorate into human behavior as a, mm. as a way that humans are with each other. The reason why it's not, it's not a fad or a fashion in, in quite the same way is because it's born from this sense of connection and interdependency and how when we support each other, and this is what Sir John Whitmore knew, when we support each other to be great, when we, when we adopt a mindset that says, I want you to be successful, I want the best for you, I want, and he was a living embodiment of it. I, you know, this generosity of spirit towards somebody else that says, I love it when you thrive. I, I see the potential of you and I see the possibility of this and I want to facilitate, you know, facilitate that in some way, not in an egoic way, because that's, that's a trap, but just, a, I love it. You know, and this is why you know, once people get on this coaching training thing that they, they want to become a coach and nothing else, which again, is a trap mm. but this is why coaching isn't going anywhere but and this is also why i took the decision actually from what i've seen over the past however many years in organizations um i know that these behaviors are are formative when placed in a management and leadership role so all the problems that we, you know, when we talk about low engagement, when we talk about the war for talent, when we talk about, um, you know, disenfranchised, disconnected, you know, everything that we saw during coaching, uh, dur during COVID, um, you know, how do we, we've got all these, these remote teams, coaching, 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 because coaching skills facilitate connection, understanding, constructive challenge. So I think. In terms of formative decisions that that pointed me in a direction that wasn't always a happy happy trail to to furrow uh, to plow, um, that was the decision that changed my direction. I think was to commit to that. Yeah. And how did you? Like, I I have a sense of of how it could be done, but I'm fascinated to know how you built from the early days into having like what I understand to be uh, a, a mid-scale company that is doing this mm. in a number of organizations simultaneously. Um, what was that process like? Gosh, now you're testing my memory. Um, I remember one of the first people that employed us to do, because we, we started to do it as, and and this is still this is still true. Sometimes you have to reduce the word coaching and replace it with what what the organization is looking to do. So let the coaching be the how behind the what they already want to do. And 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 of course, managing performance is something that um certainly in my early career was a lot a lot about what people wanted to do. So people have performance management life cycles, and what we were able to do. Um, very easily was make those links to 
the performance management conversations, so those twice, three times yearly conversations that people had with their managers, and we were able to do a skills training that would support not only, um, you know, the those review conversations of performance, but also tackling the tougher conversations of of, of constructive feedback mm. or um, even disciplinary type situations. And we were able to um, to make those links and and enable managers to have conversations that were able, where they are able to deal with. Um, difficult issues or situations of non-performance or or trying to you know raise people's levels of engagement um, and get people off off the stands and on the pitch in the conversation so rather than having this kind of dictatorial style of conversation where I just down as your manager I download all my thoughts to you um, and then hopefully you pick them up and run them and I and you know I have this swell of pride because I think I've imparted my you know 40 years of wisdom to this young person and um, rather than that that actually I'm taught to facilitate and and help you think and act for yourself so I remember in the early days what we we would just and we still do this to be to be honest we we position coach training coach development into the what and the why that somebody already has and that could be um, and raising engagement levels, it could be moving to a matrix management structure, it could be running virtual teams. We're always able to display how these more artful, elegant, resourceful and resili resilient conversational skills that underpin coaching can help in those situations because this old model of I tell you do or I instruct you comply or I know you don't that it, that's what always needs to fall away and that that issue is a continuous issue it's a you know it's, it, we, we're getting better um so we spend less time so so now that the whole field is much more mature in its understanding I, like back in the early days I, we would literally have to explain to people what we meant by coaching and what we wanted to go and train people to do now we have much more mature clients that come to us knowing what coaching can do and asking us to compete against other providers that are going to do something similar um so it's a much more sophisticated mature aware savvy buyer um i i say that sometimes that i find that frustrating that people people often want quick and they want cheap and and of course we can give you we can give you, we, you know, we'll, we'll say to them, okay, we'll do this and then there'll be an integration and then we'll come back in, we'll do this and then we'll work with them this way. And I'll say, okay, can you do it in half a day? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's an age old problem that a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of providers in this space will recognize. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that, that's, that's the game. That's the ongoing challenge, the ongoing game. And all we've got is more sophisticated about how we do it. We have this principle principle called bonsai and like a lot of people during covid we went online we built this online learning platform called LearnStar, which is a very sophisticated um, learning platform that has lots of rich resources and things on it also has a lot of free mm. to download stuff if people want to have a look at that um so whilst the the, the technology has evolved perhaps some of the adept ways we've learned to do it has evolved 
Um, writing the book certainly helped because that brilliant coaching has certainly helped because that gives us a text to work alongside with with people. Um, but yeah, that that's the evolutionary journey, and 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 it's a horse I'm I'm on and I backed, and I'm not going to switch and start training coaches how to coach yeah. anytime soon. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. And we'll definitely link to Learn Star in the show notes for the episode. And alongside this, to what extent did your one-to-one practice, so working with senior leaders, cross-pollinate with the work you're doing going into organisations and and training leaders and managers? It, it, was it the same companies, two different streams of work? or um, it, it, it becomes two different streams of work, really. Um, I I no longer go into organizations and train coaching. I have a very talented team of people that do that, and they've all been with me 15 years plus, um, some of them 20 years plus. And if, if there is a need spotted for perhaps some exec coaching, perhaps we've got senior leaders in the room, perhaps somebody steps forward and says, you know, is that – that I, I don't tend to get involved with any of that. Mm. So that tends to be um, something on its own. I might go in where we've done something where we've gone through a whole organization and and um, trained a lot of managers in this because people are really, you know, the, the client is really committed to making a step change in the nature of everyday conversations, how would the culture be much more supportive towards um, performance and engagement and results. Um, I might go in and do some kind of masterclass perhaps around a specialized topic like the ego in coaching and how that affects our ability to coach or um, coaching and the link to engagement or coaching and the link to emotional maturity and emotional intelligence. But generally that business, I, I support my team to run that business. So I provide the materials, the models. We've got very sophisticated ways of of discussing and unpacking that. We've got something called the stepping stones model that helps somebody come from directive to less directive, you know, to say it's not it's not just tell or ask. You know, there are various behaviors that sit along this scale of flexibility, like um, giving a summary or making an observation or giving advice that are more or less directive um, and though all of that all of those models and those um principles and ideas are born from you know just working on the ground with managers and realizing they need a different like, they don't want to be a coach they don't want the philosophy or how good it is or how lovely you'll feel when you do it um they want the hints the ticks tips the tricks what do i stop doing what do i start doing yeah. give me a way of thinking about that that gives me easy fast access um, and so that's the that's the work I'm doing behind uh, what's going on. Um, and indeed, I've got a team day in London this week to to sit with the team, and we'll be going over stuff. We have this principle called bonsai, which is we nip and tuck things. Yeah. Um, what's needed? What does the client need? You know, we now we now get much smarter around doing pre work and integration support and all those good things that we've learned to do over the years. Yeah. And so it it sounds like your one to one coaching practice sits. In, in a separate part of the business. It does, and it, and it's, yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. it does. And I wonder, around money, and one of the things that comes up so frequently for coaches at all different levels of their um, their journey in terms of business, how you 
have thought about money as as a business owner and and particularly in relation to your one-to-one practice and whether that's or or the ways in which that might have evolved and shifted over the time that you've been practicing yes um glad you bring up money because it's a fantastic subject and we don't talk about it enough um back in the early days one of my like how do i be happy fulfilled and successful one of those things was you know and how do i make loads of money and how mm. am i a millionaire before i'm 14 all that good stuff um <laughs> gosh a million's not even much money these days is it um so money was always a big part of my aspiration in terms of um these are the results i want to see these are this is what i expect to see and and so when you start on the one to and so when i was when i was working as a project manager um you know an external that would go in on on situations or a, a contractor um consultant whatever you might call it um that was all determined by day rate so we we used to compete with each other on day rate so what's your day rate is it 250 is it 550 is it 1000 then you then you'd meet someone that was learning you know earning back in the day 2000 pounds a day and you think oh you've just blown my mind <laughs> because and then I heard, I remember hearing that Anthony Robbins charged people to sign up to be coached by Anthony Robbins. You had to put a million dollars down um, or he wouldn't even take your call. And <laughs> things like that used to blow my mind. Um, so I, so it's a great subject because what you realize, and somebody told me this early, really early on, and it's true, or, or it has become true for me, which is money's not real. Mm-hmm. And and that's not helpful for anybody. So there will be people sat thinking, well, you might say that, but you don't have my bills and my mortgage and my whatever mm. debt or whatever. And yet, when you go and study this subject specifically, and that there are certain, there were certainly lots of books on my shelf about this. Um, and I probably went on courses about I can't remember, but but I will have attended a day event on on manifesting abundance or something. Um, what you start to realize, and I think this is borne out by some research, but I'm sorry I can't reference it adequately, is what you realize is there is a direct correlation between what you think you're worth and how much money you earn. And practically that comes out with your ability to ask for money, your ability to sound like you're worth that money, and your ability to be comfortable with it once you start earning it. And I have seen all of those things go really wonky for people. Um, And I remember somebody back in the day, I was hiring some trainers or something, and somebody came to network because he wanted some work. And and, and we had a pleasant chat. And I said, okay, so um, if I were to hire you for a day's training, you know, what's your day rate? And and he paused and took a like lit, physically took a gulp in front of me and said, um, three hundred and fifty pounds a day. And then I kept quiet and he said and then he said, But I really want to work with you. So I, I mean I, I I would I would take two hundred and fifty if that was okay. And I kept quiet. And he said, Oh, less than that really. I mean, you could just tell me. And it was it was kind of it was I mean, bless this guy. It was like a masterclass in how not to ask for money mm-hmm. because well one in back in the day that 350 pounds was not a great deal of money to like in in what for the job i was hiring it was worth twice that the job that i was hiring was worth twice that and so his first number was just a random number to him he that he felt was a lot of money and because i stepped quiet and he was continuing he, the figure just went down and down so God bless him. 
Um, and I didn't hire him because I, I was so uncomfortable with his with his lack of self-regard, self-esteem, mm. because he if he didn't think he was worth it, he was probably not very good at what he did. And he mm. probably knew that. Mm. He probably was just starting out and, you know. So this gap of of con- you know, incongruence. There has to be yeah. some congruence between what you feel the job is worth, what you feel you're worth, what you would be comfortable with, what you'd be uncomfortable with, what you'd be delighted with, but not amazed by. So there's a saying, put your put your basket out far enough so that when you shoot basket with the ball, you're trying to get the ball in the basket, that you've got a chance of getting it. Not so far out that it's going to, you know, so if you hear, and this is where people get confused because they might hear a, a coach saying, oh yeah, I, I own a, so-and-so owns a thousand pounds an hour. And you think, oh, great. That's, that's amazing. I'm only charging 150 pounds an hour, so I need to up my rates. Well, don't go after a thousand pounds an hour because it not from 150 pounds an hour because you're unlikely to embody a thousand pounds an hour. And if you do, you will probably catastrophize yourself into failure so much because you'll get in front of somebody that's paying a thousand pounds an hour quite serious about that whole situation and then you'll start to feel anxious or upset or you know so that it's a there's a personal sense there's a personal matching there there are a few tips and tricks that i'll cover about how to ask for money but but what's more the most important thing about asking for money is be really comfortable get behind your number and stay embodied behind that number um and let the number be the number um so one of the one of the tips I would give people about asking for money is the reverse of what that lovely young man did to me that day um is not to say the number and let it drop like a brick into a pond like with a stony silence afterwards because functionally all that does is create this chasm of in the conversation so so if you want if it was if you wanted to earn five hundred pounds an hour, you felt it was a senior level of of man- management in a mid sized organization. You're thinking, okay, this has got to be five hundred pounds an hour. Um, then don't just say it's five hundred pounds an hour and then leave a stony silence. You would put place the number in the conversation elegantly so that it wasn't the most important consideration by the person hearing it. And they didn't interpret from you that it was the most important consideration for you. So what I mean by that is um, you might say, okay, so it sounds like you might be the kind of coach you're looking for. What's, what are your fees? What are your costs? And you say, well, I tend to charge per assignment. A typical assignment would be 12 hours to be spread normally over six assignments, uh, six sessions of two hours each. Um the cost per hour works out at around £500 an hour, but that also includes um, email conversations between the sessions, so I'm available. I'm really happy to take the odd call. Um, I'll also do some profiling up front. That's included. What's what's not included in that is any travel if you want me to come in on site. So you can see yeah. the £500 an hour goes into an elegant conversation around the structure, how you work, what they can expect, what you'll expect from them, what they can expect from you. 
And what I hope you would hear is I'm really comfortable about all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I'd said, even if I'd, if, if I'd put £2,000 an hour and I didn't think I was worth it, and I'm not saying that anybody isn't worth it, somebody's worth it, um, it's, uh, it's still going to set up such a wobble with me and it's going to be distracting to my mind that I'm going to keep chew, wanting to chew back over it. And in this dog-like communication that we have with each other, you're probably like likely to pick up on that and say, mm. can we just go back to this rate? Because it, really, it sounds a lot higher than anybody else is talking about. Yeah, right. And does I, that make sense? It absolutely does. And I hear that there is a collection of energies around it that um are so important with the way in which you present it and um and hold yourself alongside it how you support yes. it not and yes. and of course uh, the awareness that it's it's possible to say it in a process of negotiation and if that does land and you move forward into the engagement that you and there was for, for whatever reason, you've moved past the negotiation in inverted commas successfully and the number has been accepted, but you're uncomfortable with it. Yes. It's it's highly likely that you're going to keep bumping into it each session yes. in one way Completely. or another. And it's it's in the Completely. system. It, 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 Completely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is that like, it sounds like, or I imagine that's been an evolution for you across the course of of your your career, and it, certainly my experience um, has been that it becomes it becomes more comfortable to talk about money generally, and that yes. if the figures are going up somewhat incrementally, there's not an enormous leap that also leads to the level of comfort. Yes. Um, yes. I wonder what other things there are that's useful to say about money. So so. Um, it's important to know your value. So it's important to be able to connect the input to the output. And, and it's not always, a, you know, it's not always straightforward to do. In order to get yourself comfortable, you have to be able, so um, just to state the obvious, as when I first began coaching, I began with uh, fairly junior managers, say working in a call, I remember working in one call center situation. So fairly junior managers running teams in call centers. And that has a value because those call center managers have a value because of the work that they're doing. And then you go to their bosses, you know, middle management tier, then you get upper middle management, you know, the senior management, and then you might get to, I don't know, head of department, and then you might get to, um, you know, executives. Um, and and the rates you would expect de determined by the scale of the op operation, the organization, and also sometimes the nature of the organization. So, um, so the NHS is a huge institution, but it doesn't pay as well as professional services, law firms, things like that. Um, so there's something determined by sector, something determined by level, um, and something determined by scale of organization uh, that would say there's, there's a probable escalation in rates. Hmm. My The success of my career as I as I watch it, I have gone up those levels. And so I recognized when I needed to say no to an assignment because it was a too junior a situation and to start to give it to my 
um, team okay. because it, it and be willing to give up work to do that. But that's a whole other thing because because backing yourself sometimes means putting yourself out of work. And I and I and I did that in the early days. I I said no to project management stuff to sit at home with a mortgage and bills and all those good things, um, waiting, thinking. I'm going to spend my savings before I go back to doing the thing I don't want to do. So some, yeah. you, sometimes you have to kind of back it up a little bit um, and not be foolhardy and be, and be willing to make money and go and, you know, chop wood, carry water. Um, mm. So there, there is a natural ladder that you go up and it's just as you said, there, there are logical increments. But by now, my rates are very personal to me and very personal to situations and and because i i have a, such a short list of five or six people that i'm coaching at any one time because i'm doing all these other things and i have the luxury of that you know i've gone from coaching 20 people at a time which is completely mind blowing but i don't know how i survived it and and it was a lot of in person stuff um because I've worked hard to make things easy. Thing, you know, I, I have the luxury of, of of choice a little bit more, but I still have I still have made resonant resonant decisions all the way up, which is I won't I won't accept something that is worth less than the value I think I can add and am adding, and um, I need to feel good about the number. Um, just to to complete the the point about. Sometimes we get so fixed on the number and the per hour that we forget the impact. So where you're working with somebody that earns 80, 90, 100,000 pounds a year, you can guarantee they have a span of influence in the organization that is likely to impact millions of pounds. Mm. And when you, the more you practice and the more you're in practice, and the more you realize and, and do kind of post assignment reviews or you know have somebody else review or get feedback or whatever the um, mechanism might be once you start to realize how somebody has restructured a department how they made a different kind of hire how they took a different turn how they decided to do so you know you, there's a great question you can ask somebody in a questionnaire following an assignment which is what has happened that wouldn't have happened were it not for the coaching intervention and that's one of the interesting things, which is I decided to double the size of the operation or I decided to stop doing this much. I decided to do stop doing all of this activity and focus on this. And then what's the benefit of that has been this. Then you start to realize the net worth in terms of revenue of effective coaching within organizations is huge. Yeah. And also the mistakes and the screw ups that people avoid, you know, the arguments, the conflicts the disenfranchised situations that get healed it's it's literally worth millions and i can, and and you know i can't point at research that says that but i my experience says this stuff's always worth hundreds of thousands of pounds it's it's often worth millions so when it come when it's the difference between 500 750 1000 pounds to 2000 pounds an hour actually when you know what you do and you've seen what you do it means you show up knowing the impact of what seems like just a conversation that's not just a conversation. Yeah, 
And I know it's for me what comes up as a parallel to that frame we were talking about earlier, particularly for coaches that maybe have less experience around the value of you going through that cycle multiple times so you get a sense of yes the the, the network effect of the yeah. intervention and you can yeah. then more consistently and congruently stand behind the figure with confidence thinking well i've i've literally seen and heard it play out the impact that um yes that that sound coaching practice can have across different layers of an organization particularly if like you, you're able to continue to move up the levels of seniority within organisations because, understandably, those people have greater influence over what's happening in the wider, the wider company. Yes, That's, it's really fascinating. I want to take a not a left turn, but like I, I've heard you say in um some of the research that i've done for our conversation today something along the line so i'm going to paraphrase and hopefully not butcher it too badly but that showing up fully as a coach is the expression of yourself in in service or something along those lines and i well let me pause there and and check that i've not just made something up um I have I have a, a principle which is the, the biggest challenge we have as coaches is to get ourselves out of the way in a coaching conversation. I suspect you're pointing at is the need that so, – so one, the person that benefits from you being a coach the most is you mm. because of the journey you have to go on to become a coach. So to become a really great coach, the journey you have to go on is self-inquiry, um, dealing with your own foibles, insecurities, limiting beliefs. Um, you have to get healthy, stay healthy. You have to um, show up in a professional, disciplined way. You have to um, follow your own principles that, that you know, when you know when you're trying to coach somebody to be their best or be emotionally mature about a situation, you've got to learn emotional maturity yourself. You've got to deal with your own um, your own inner conflict, outer conflict. So, so the the thing that fuels my expression as a coach is the person that has travelled that journey, which I suspect is what you're pointing at in terms of a quote. Yeah. Um, so the thing that informs my coaching in terms of um, what I bring to it is my own journey, my own path, my own path of self-inquiry, my own path of study and learning, my own path of, um, of decluttering me like the letting go the 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 you know the getting rid of chips on shoulders insecurities false boundaries limitations any imposter syndrome you know all of that work you have to do mm. kim morgan's really good on this in barefoot because she comes from a therapeutic background um all of that work that you do to be able to show up cleanly in the room and create a conversation of possibility create that space of listening that isn't about you this is what I mean about get, getting yourself out of the way to show up for somebody to create that the energetic connection of the conversation and hold that and have somebody trust you, be open with you, 
be willing to venture further in a conversation than perhaps they would with most people because they sense a climate of trust mm. and a climate of safety. Um, that's the work that we have to do to show up. And, and, and that's probably what you're pointing to is to show up as that self-expression, but let that be somebody that's done, you know, that's done yeah. some decluttering yeah. along the way. And I wonder if you might speak to some of the practices that have supported you in that, that have been effective in your decluttering and becoming whole in order that you can hold that central trust and groundedness and stability. Yes. And and with the proviso that it's a journey that continues, I can kind of point back and go, oh, I did that and I did that and I did that. But <laughs> but it, you know, there's a when you're on this path, you realize it's just there's always another layer. There's always another door of 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 inquiry opening. Um, so I mentioned things like NLP and, and and I also mentioned meditation in the past. So in the past, so I did meditate before it was something that you could say out loud. I, I you know, I I've always been a bit of um a bit alternative. Let's say it's funny how things come around. Even things like yoga back in the day, or or you know doing meditation, or um, I remember studying self hypnosis, and I used to have to go. I used to tell people I was just going on on a yoga weekend or something when I was actually going to do something quite alternative. Um, and and it's all things now that that have become more normal. But um, so I have had this path of inquiry and going on lots of weird and wonderful stuff and, and and the conventional to the less conventional so you know success stuff like the anthony robbins or um business thinking or um all that kind of how to be successful type stuff but also things like um the institute of self actualization isa back in the day which was quite tough kind of therapeutic type interventions um I did a lot with somebody called uh, an organization called Landmark Forum um, did all of their curriculum, uh, both here and in the States. Um, I have studied a lot with um, a mentor and friend, uh, Brandon Bays, that did. She she developed a process called the journey, which is an emotional processing technique. So it's an emotional processing technique that I have you know witnessed a lot experienced a lot myself and done hundreds and hundreds of journey processes with other people but it it again it's because it sort of comes from a base of nlp in terms of um dealing with physiology dealing with how stored emotions are repressed uh, repressed emotions are stored within the body so i've done i must have done 12 13 14 years of stuff with with brandon bays in the journey um alongside her organization i began going to india a lot um kind of 10 years ago so i must have been to india obviously we had the lost years of covid but before i was going regularly for the previous eight years i'm going back again in february for three months uh, for three weeks um so doing things like um I don't know, bathing in the Ganges, meditating in caves, staying, I'm going to stay in an ashram that I love down in Kerala. Um, so working with the mind and the Maya and the illusory nature of self. Um, I've also more recently started doing stuff with Joe Dispenza that you've probably heard of. So I did his week long. He's the neuroscientist that works a lot with the mind body connection. Um, he's neuroscience and epigenetics. So I go on these kind of 
weird and wonderful experiences and then bring stuff back into my work and my writing you know in in uh the books there's there's stuff about the ego in there um a lot of the presuppositions come from working with the mind um and 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 it's the joy behind all of the work i do you know it's it's a very personal journey and and i would encourage anybody to follow their own breadcrumbs in this way you know to find the things that switches them on and you know if you're interested in working with trauma or you're interested in working with um financial abundance or you're whatever it might be you know learn and then teach that's that's the kind of way it happens isn't it we teach what we must need to learn yeah and i'm interested in like your journey of self-inquiry and the um the personal nature of that and how you've followed your own bread comes their energy and and done things um before they were more widely um accepted as stuff that that people do and like that you have also from what you've said in our conversation so far today largely focused on individuals but within organizations as opposed mm. to personal coaching and i wonder if that's mm. ever been part of your practice or there's um a, a reason that you've you've not kind of ventured in that direction it's 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 not anything i've ever really wanted to do um and partly that's a that's a financial situation so when organizations um pay for coaching the rates are a lot higher um and i my my context is business and and that's where i'm comfortable and that's and i i understand an orientation to that it isn't that i mean i i i mentor people outside of business i might gift you know if somebody's did it recently in the village somebody's son's out of university doesn't know which way to go you know i i i'll gift somebody a coaching session to say let's do a profile let's say, let's because that's enjoyable but it's not it's it's not what i do for a living it's it it doesn't end up going in that direction and the the contradiction is that i would be able to speak a lot more openly about the kind of spiritual elements to what i do personally on my own journey and and some of the the weird and wonderful the more kind of woo woo stuff that you end up realizing around the nature of reality and the mystical and um and and how we interact with this you would be able to have much more interesting conversations perhaps but what's interesting is and it is a bit like me meditating way back when when i couldn't kind of be open about stuff like that um what's interesting is noticing the shape of conversations that i'm able to have at senior levels of leadership in organizations is definitely shifting mm. and what people are open to talk about in terms of well-being their own relationship to themselves and the work they're doing um i have noticed that is definitely breaking open and i don't know whether that's a, a kind of collective consciousness we're starting to realize we need another place to look 
and the places and outside the places inside you know if 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 we're wanting to shape reality then we need to change how we're showing up in that um and i don't know whether it's that i found the language to access or people trust me more to open up on those subjects um but certainly the nature you know the nature of my coaching conversations are, are much more around personal and perhaps even spiritual and you know they they feel more therapeutic and have done for a lot of years to be fair yeah yeah but you can only do that when you're ready when you're ready yourself so anybody listening that's that's thinking oh i'm still talking about how to run teams and how to be effective and how to don't do this until you've done it five levels down yourself yeah. don't think oh i'm going to start talking about the ego and spirituality and be careful because yeah. you've got to be it you've got to, it's for this is what i mean about you show up it's from you yeah it's not a bolt-on it's it's no, uh, no, no, you no, need no. to come from a, a basic foundational place of having done the work yourself in order to approach that for others that you yeah. can only uh, I, I can't remember where it initially came but essentially that you're only able to to take clients to places that you've already been your own version yeah. yourself and and are able to um again about this this confidence and centeredness stand in that place of um of of holding them safely there i guess in some yes respect. yes and and there's a really obvious egoic trap in that which is oh i've gone and done and all this interesting stuff let me tell you about it <laughs> Because um, that's that's completely the reverse of what I'm alluding to. It's you bring your whole self to the conversation, yes. But it's you, you know, whatever whatever you're drawing forth from all of your journey is. It, it could be the smallest minute minute element of that. Just a word, just a gesture, just a a phrase that gives somebody some resonance of understanding that says, ah, right, yeah. So, I, so an example would be um, I uh, did a chemistry meeting with a very senior partner, a very large organization recently, and I used the word spiritual journey when I was talking about retirement, and it completely resonated with him, and he, and he was very comfortable to go in that. And I, from everything else I was saying, that's what he wanted to talk about. Hmm. And, and, that's and that was unusual, but I've no doubt that's why he wanted to work with me, because he knew – that was an access point for a for a conversation. Yeah, fascinating. I'm mindful of time and us coming towards the the final part, and I noticed that we haven't spoken about your fiction writing and your um your novels for young adults, and I'd love to hear how that has been part of your practice um, and. Yeah, a, a little more about what need that meets for you, or um, yeah, how that sort of folds yeah. into your your primary practice of being a writer. Yeah, it really it really does, and it's and it's it's a complete labour of love. So my the, my first book is called Magic to Memphis, and it's has a subtitle on it, which is What if your life is working from the inside out? And you'll get from that um, what I aspired to do with it, and 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 I think I've done a fair job, is, is to put these ideas of how life is working, you know, how 
if you're angry and hostile, then you're going to show up, you know, you're going to see conflict in your environment. Um, Or if you are somebody that is consistently rigid to change or resistant to change, you're going to see little change happening. So Magic to Memphis is um, about a young teenage runaway living rough in a trailer in the Midwest of America with just a pit bull terrier for company. She's a very talented musician. She's estranged from her alcoholic mother and younger sister she wants to go on a music um quest to try and win it big and make it big in a music contest in memphis which is why it's called magic to memphis um because on her way she meets this kind of shapeshifter traveler um called finch who who offers her the idea that her her world might be working from the inside out so that the reason things weren't working out for her so she you know, she loses her job in the record store. She gets kicked out of the band. The trailer burns down. It all sort of gets worse before it gets better. That she, that there's some life lessons she needs to start to learn, to let people in, to ask for help, to, to, to take off. She's a tough battler. She's an outlaw. She's called Jessie. Um, she's an outlaw archetype. Um, that when she kind of puts down the guns or puts down, you know, takes off the gloves, um, that life can start to step forward and help so there it is it is a book where there's a story there's the kind of this thrilling quest to memphis and this this whole um dark character that's that's chasing her for something that she's got um but there's also kind of parable about this coming of age story that says she's she can't she get she gets some realizations along the way if you like mm. um so that was my first one and and i it was an absolute delight to write and it took me a long time to write, probably took seven or eight years because I was so busy in the business to write it, but I was determined to get that out. And then earlier this year, I released another book called Truthkeeper. And Truthkeeper is the first, is book one of a trilogy. And it's about, it's based in the UK this time and it's about a young girl that's been put in the care system. She thinks her parents are dead. She, they're not dead. She's been put there. She's been put in a, in a children's home to keep her safe because she's the last in a long line of truth keepers. So when she, um, and this is a thousand years old, this is, you know, going back to biblical times, there's been these truth keepers and that when she comes of age, when she, um, becomes 18 she will inherit the ability to know the truth in any moment and that then starts to become as you might guess that starts to become against the guardians of the truth and the suppressors of the truth being the illuminati historically um and so it's a it's a again a thrilling tale that starts to point at these truths of life what is true about the world and about life and how can we know that um, so, yeah, as you can see, get me started about my creative writing and you won't stop me. We could be here another two hours. Yeah, yeah. And and I noticed that it's got, at least as I interpret it, great alignment with your approach, that like the underpinning of your approach to coaching as relates to how yeah. we look at the nature of reality and the unseen yes. aspects of ourselves and how we might access them, how we can operate in the world more effectively through understanding what's been sort of preloaded into our way of being and unpacking that. Yes, completely. That's completely the link. 
Yeah. It's 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 me loving to write, loving to create characters, lo- loving the craft of writing, and wanting to express these ideas in a format that and and they're crossover books. So they're they're, they're the protagonist is in them is a teenager, which positions them as young adult, but they're what's called crossover, which means adults read them because they're written in an adult um, voice. You know, the ad- adults can read them just as well as kids. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's all a way of just sharing these ideas and, and this inquiry into the nature of reality. And I wonder, the other thing that comes up for me is along with like all of these elements of your professional practice as regards your one-to-one coaching work, running uh, the, the company and, and leading a team of coaches that are working in organizations, being an author of um, uh, fiction for young adults. Like, how do you, and I, and, and spending a good amount of time on self-inquiry discovery, how do you, um, how do you stay grounded from a health perspective? One of the things that that comes up as relating to coaches building businesses and recognizing that even even if the sole practice they're they're focused on is is one to one coaching, there are so many other aspects. Them them staying happy and healthy in themselves. I wonder beyond meditation, what else is important to you? Any sort of approaches or tactics you take that it would be useful um, to talk about yeah absolutely so 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 staying healthy well-being is a big part of my life and what I do simply because I derailed around seven or eight years ago when it all came to a crashing halt and I was burned out I got sick uh, with a really horrible virus and that I didn't realize I'd had for years but I, I was in uh, a chronic state with it and it had basically taken out my immune system um and ended up not being able to get out of a chair and realizing some something's wrong and been going to the doctors for years saying i'm not i don't feel well i don't i'm tired i've got this fatigue thing ended up in with private doctors in harley street and stuff to to figure out what was wrong but what was what was immediately wrong when I start, started to have all these functional nutrition tests where they talk about your toxicity and your mineral levels and your vitamin deficiencies and your um, detoxification pathways and all, you know, all of that whole functional medicine realm, I realized I was completely burned out mm. and I had not got away with it because the body will always have the last word and mm. had to take a year out of work and didn't re- and, and thought and had to take the decision to take a year out of work knowing that. I might not have a business to come back to at the end of that. And somehow I did. Mm. Um, well, I did. Um, but yeah, so because of that, I am now on a, in a very different um, frame of mind about that, which is I know I need to make my health important. And I know, so I don't start work before 10 o'clock in the morning, which people will be listening to thinking, what, really? I start at eight. And well, mm. I used to start at eight and then I got burnt out. My body had the last one. It took me out for a year. And now I realize I don't survive. And if I don't get my sleep, if I don't, you know, I hardly drink. I eat as much organic food as I can. You know, I don't eat processed foods or garbage or, and it isn't that I don't have the bar of chocolate and, and, you know, gin and tonic every now and then, because I absolutely do. But in contrast to a lot of people around me, um, and it's when you get into more broader social circles, you realize 
you do you have taken a different set of choices with health because um there is i have so many principles about what i will eat and what i want to eat what time i'll eat and it's it is all that really boring stuff that that health stuff um i do you know i wear an aura ring that monitors steps sleep deep sleep rem sleep stress levels all of that stuff it is so normal to me that it isn't until I get into a, other types of, um, like I, I went on something on Saturday with a bunch of girlfriends. It was eleven o'clock in the morning, and they were all bursting out bottles of prosecco and saying, "Just anybody?" And I, I, I don't even know how to respond. There was like yes. nothing on the table I could drink. It's like, "Have you got this?" And like, We've got water, and I was like, "Is it tap water?" You're like, "Yeah, I know, I can't eat tap water. I can't drink tap water. So I'm fine. So, so yeah, health is health is something that I can only say for everybody that you know listening you learn this for yourself you you don't or you or you pay the price yeah. and i paid the price so i'm not any and i'm still on a on a you know a healing path you know i'm still um i still have routines and protocols and supplementation stuff and all that good stuff um so i'm quite informed about that topic um but that has because i was so sick i was mm. so poorly i was literally bedridden uh, and it wasn't a good time in my life anyway. So yeah, every, it, I, I was I had this house of cards, and it just all got swept away in the most wonderful way that life does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it like it's it strikes me certainly from some of the things that come up in some of the work I do, and certainly some of my direct experiences that um, this this a, approach to the the edges of what we're capable of sustaining is happening for more and more people um and the our our capacity to you know even with people that are adept at self-inquiry and paying attention mm. and listening mm. our, our capacity to really hear what our bodies are saying is um for many diminished or we've we've learned to kind of move completely we're disconnected past. yeah yeah completely and we and i was kidding my you know i'm a mind type i, I was just kidding myself that i i it's a, the mind is incredibly powerful at keeping us going when the body is flatlined when the body says no more i can't do it my adrenal my adrenals are flayed i'm toxic i have mm. no more energy left in the tanks I have no immune system. My gut health is gone. Mm -hmm. And yet the mind will still go, yeah, but it's only half past nine. If I just do this till 11 o'clock tonight, I, I, I'll just know. And, or I'll just start on Saturday, Sunday afternoon and get ahead on the week. All those th ways we negotiate. We don't, we're not negotiating with anybody. We're, we're negotiating with madness. It's, it makes no sense. But, but the madness is anybody listening. We, you'll do what you'll do until your body has the last word. And, yeah. That's yeah. kind of it. But there is an egoic trap with, and I and I will just make this point because it's important for coaches. There's an egoic trap with, with coaching that it's sort of a service industry. So mm. we're doing it for other people. So we feel like we're doing something good and worthwhile, which is a huge egoic trap. And it becomes more worthy or something like that. And when you're doing this worthy thing and you're building a business around this worthy thing and then you're perhaps running kids to family trying to keep other people happy quite often the people that come in are good people that that want to make other people happy which is a lovely selfless thing to do but completely redundant when when you're going down for the third time and you've got no oxygen left in your tank yeah. um 
you have to look after yourself first. You are your own responsibility first because you haven't you haven't got anything, you know, this mind body vessel that is your the thing you're taking to work. So look after it because that's the ultimate tool of your trade is being able to show up, you know, get up, show up and be fabulous on the day. Yeah. And you've got to feel good to do you've got to feel physically good to do that. And and even just Basic things like sleep, how much people negotiate on sleep in mm. order to keep, you know, I'll stay up watching TV with my partner because I haven't seen my partner very much. And so it will get to 11.30 when realize I, I've got busy. I should have been in bed at 9.30. Yeah. And all of that negotiation, negotiation, but it's just an hour, but it's just this. It's just another, it's not. No, absolutely. The importance of showing up for ourselves in order that we can, then perhaps others, yeah. show, show up for others yeah yeah completely and as completely. we move into these last few minutes of our conversation I'm, I'm conscious that i've i've largely guided um what we've been talking about through my questions and and seeking to frankly take advantage of um having this time with you and, and ask all the things i wanted to ask i wonder if there's anything that we haven't covered that you would really like to to talk about or um or share or state um in, mm. in these last few minutes i guess what's what's missing for me is is just to acknowledge to anybody listening um we are going through times of incredible change and this and and that's become a cliche in itself and there can be a tendency to look at the world as it is with all of the conflicts, with all the all of the tech, with the gig economy, with with the pace and the rate and trying to keep up with all of that. They, they can be overwhelmed just simply trying to read the world and trying to understand and navigate our part within that. And how, how do we create happiness, success, fulfillment when we have such conflict, there's wars, there's viruses, there's, you know, potentially Armageddon just around the corner. It, it, it can be really daunting, I think, in, in this time of turbulence for anybody. And to kind of come full circle back is the world works from the inside out. So all, and it comes from your, the point you made about stay within your circle of influence you know build your own ability to be happy successful and fulfilled equip yourself to be resourceful and resilient you know learn and grow in ways that are healthy and meaningful to you and find find pathways through that make sense to you rather than being seduced by the aspirations of other people or you know what we see on tiktok or insta or any of those things you know the world is is desperate and clamoring for our attention to tell us how we should be living our life what we should look like what we should sound like what success should be how much we should be in and and it's a really it, it it's it can be a really confusing conflicting time i think and and my encouragement for any of us in this profession of coaching is to remember we're strong 
when we are strong, you know, we're powerful when we've built that within ourselves. We're, we're the most impactful when we've done the work to serve ourselves first. Um, and, and no matter what, what's been said during this discussion, there, there will have been points of resonance for somebody listening to think that's something I could attend to. And it could be something you already know, something you have kind of heard about and got more interested in. But throw, you know, from all this conversation, throw the whole lot away apart from those one or two points where that just landed with you because there can be a tendency with anything to think, oh, I need to know all about all of this. I need to know more about all of this or I need to do all of it. You don't because that's where overwhelm comes from. That's, that's me studying, reading too many books and thinking I needed to know everything that everybody was saying. Um, just find, you know, look at your own situation, look at your own aspirations and find those two or three points that are going to strengthen you as an individual, that are going to bolster your sense of well-being and happiness and fulfillment um, and, and just leave the rest as, as kind of flotsam and jetsam on the ocean of life. Wow, what a wonderful sentiment to to finish on. Um, so we have the um, links for your various websites. So we've got Star mm. Coaching, um, Learn Star, and then your YouTube site. They will be in the um, show notes for the episodes. Um, and we'll put links to your books also. And Thank you. All that really remains for me is to say an enormous thank you for both taking this time and sharing of yourself and um, your your thoughts on on coaching. It's been a real pleasure. I've loved it. I've loved loved hanging out with you, Neil. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Just a couple more things before you go on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Robbie Swale. I'm the creator and founder of The Coach's Journey. For those that do know me, you can relax. Robbie is on this episode after all. Um, how exciting for me to get to be a listener to an amazing conversation between Neil and Julie. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, given you've got all the way to the end, I'm guessing you took something from this conversation. And so I wanted to share a couple of ways that you might support The Coach's Journey podcast. Um, the first way is share the show, share this episode with with a coach or a community of coaches who you think might find it useful. Our aim is to create and, and, and support the ecosystem of, of coaching so that more people can transform more lives through the amazing thing that is coaching. And, and so by sharing this episode, you can help us do that. Um, but if you want to really support the podcast, if you want to help it um, continue to grow, continue to go from strength to strength, reach more people, there are a couple of ways for you to do that. One is you can become a supporter of the podcast. You give a small amount of money each month, say £5 a month, and you get some benefits from us, um, advance notice of guests, some updates on on who's coming on the show, and and various other things. Um, you can do that and find out more about it at patreon.com slash thecoachesjourney, and there's a link wherever you're listening to this in the show notes. Um, you might also, though, be interested in becoming a part of the Coach's Journey community. Um, Neil has been a member of that those of you who have listened to the episode with the other team the rest of the host team will know that that all of those members have been all of those new hosts have been a member at some, at one point some of them still are and loads of other amazing coaches are part of the coaches journey community calls how the membership works is you become a member of the community you pay anywhere between a, a 10 pounds a month and 100 pounds a month you get to come along to a certain number of group coaching calls every year with other members of the community um, and if you become a full member you get to come you get some one-to-one -one time with me as well and our aim through those calls 
is to support you to create a thriving coaching business, thrive as you do it. But but more than that, those calls have become really magical times of, of connection for those people who are there, packed with insight, packed with courage and vulnerability and humanity. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see you there. Uh, you can find out more about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. You can sign up for both at patreon.com slash thecoachesjourney. Again, those um, those links are in the show notes and at thecoachesjourney.com. A, a big thank you to everyone who's been part of the community over the years and, and who's been a supporter of the show, but particularly a big thank you to Alex Whitten, David Norris, Joey Owen and Ruth Savile for your continued support. Right, I hope we have you back on The Coach's Journey sometime soon um, and wishing you a wonderful rest of your day. 